This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. What would the end of the world actually look like? Maybe you start to hear unsettling news. Maybe you're trapped with people you didn't pick. That's the creeping fear behind the new Netflix movie, Leave the World Behind. The movie stars Julia Roberts, Ethan Hawke, and Mahershala Ali, and it tells a story about strangers who are alone together as things get dicier and dicier out there, and they're not even sure why. I'm Linda Holmes, and today we're talking about Leave the World Behind on Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mattress Firm. How do you sleep at night? No matter what might be keeping you up, Mattress Firm can help anyone sleep. Mattress Firm will find you the right mattress from a wide selection of top brands at every budget. Plus, if you see a lower price somewhere else, they'll match it up to 120 nights with their low price guarantee. Get matched at Mattress Firm's Memorial Day sale and sleep at night. Restrictions apply. See mattressfirm.com or store for details. Support for NPR comes from ADP. Say you own a business, then suddenly a solar flare adds an extra hour to each day. Would you add an extra shift, shift office hours, install those weird sleeping pod things? You can try to figure it out on your own or just get ADP. From HR to payroll, ADP designs forward-thinking solutions to help your business take on the next anything, even unexplainable cosmic events that end up granting humanity an extra hour a day. ADP. Always designing for people. This message comes from NPR sponsor ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. Enter ServiceNow. It puts AI to work for people across your business, providing intelligent tools to help remove frustration and supercharge productivity. And all of that is built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Learn more at servicenow.com slash AI for people. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mattress Firm. How do you sleep at night? Mattress Firm can help anyone sleep at night. Mattress Firm's sleep experts receive 200 plus hours of training annually to help you get your best rest. Upgrade your sleep with a Tempur-Pedic mattress made with a one-of-a-kind, infinitely adaptable temper material for exceptional support to help alleviate aches and pains. Get matched at Mattress Firm's Memorial Day sale and sleep at night. Joining me today is NPR Culture Desk correspondent Netta Ulibi. Hey, Netta. Hey, Linda. Also with us, one of the hosts of NPR's All Things Considered and the Consider This podcast, Juana Summers. Welcome back, Juana. Thanks for having me back. So Leave the World Behind was an acclaimed 2020 novel by Rahman Alam, and the Netflix movie adaptation has been hotly anticipated. It stars, as we mentioned, Julia Roberts and Ethan Hawke as Amanda and Clay Sanford, a wealthy white couple who pack their teenage son and their young daughter up for a spontaneous beach weekend at a gorgeous rental house on Long Island. But almost as soon as they arrive, things start to go haywire. In the middle of the night, the owner of the house, G.H. Scott, played by Mahershala Ali, shows up with his daughter Ruth, having fled Manhattan after a blackout. She's played by Mahala. 
It's evident that Amanda is instantly suspicious of GH because she didn't expect her ritzy rental to be owned by a Black family, but Clay tries to make peace. Eventually, the two families share the house as things out in the world get worse and worse. There are reports of all kinds of disruptions, and then the occupants of the house eventually see some of them for themselves, like way too many deer gathering at the edge of the woods. The film was written and directed by Sam Esmail, who you might know as the Mr. Robot Guy, and it's streaming tomorrow on Netflix. Juana, I'm going to start with you. What did you think of this movie? Okay, so not to get into my therapist conversations, but I'm a person who spends far too much time thinking about how the world and society might collapse on itself. I so think we all do right now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there are lots of reasons for that. But, like, that's part of what I loved about it is the fact that this movie hit at extremes, but it also felt incredibly plausible to me in a lot of ways. Like, yes, I could see American society felled by a massive cyber attack. Yes, I could see a world in which animals are certainly staring out at us from the abyss. Like, it all made sense like it could happen. That part of it really worked for me. The social commentary and some of the dialogue in the movie really didn't work for me. It fell a little bit flat, despite there's this incredible cast that we know from so many incredible films. But I think the premise really stuck, and I think there are a lot of really rewarding moments of interaction that made it worth sticking through. But there's definitely a lot that I think could have been improved upon. Yeah. We'll definitely circle back to your comment on the social commentary, because I had pretty much the same reaction. Netta, how about you? What did you think? I, I share Juana's feelings. I am a fellow collapsitarian. <laughs> there was so much that I enjoyed about the movie, and especially there was a sort of quotidian aspect. How would you behave? How would you respond if, as you slowly come to realize that the world is crumbling around you? And obsessing, for example, over not getting to see the final episode of a TV show that you love is deeply relatable. Mm -hmm. And in oh, itself, yeah. one of my favorite things about the movie, because it was so much also a comment on how important entertainment is for us, mm -hmm. the way we rely on it for comfort and for escape. But also, it, there was a critique to that that I thought was very, very compelling. Yeah, I agree. And I want to, when you say the social commentary didn't work as well, I assume that you're talking about some of the con commentary about race, which the film Indeed. definitely tries to do. As I mentioned in the in sort of the run up to this, I feel like the Julia Roberts character, mm -hmm. I think I would have found it more compelling as a story where she kind of her extremely plausible racism was more of a kind of emerging thing as the situation grew worse rather than being something she's very upfront about at first. But then as they spend time together, she kind of nominally starts to think differently, at least about these two individual people. I don't know. What did you think? I don't know. I felt like the whole thing was sort of contrived. I mean, there's this moment where G.H. appears at the front door with his daughter. They're dressed impeccably. And Amanda, played by Julia Roberts, cannot for a second comprehend that this well-dressed Black man could own the beautiful home that she and her husband have spent, I'm sure, a whole lot of money to take their family on this last-minute trip and get away. I'm sorry? Uh, this is our house. I'm the George you emailed back and forth with. No, I, I remember the name. I just... This is... This is your house. And I just felt like throughout the movie... That kind of stays hanging. They become closer sort of by necessity because they're set into the situation where they are the only people that each other can trust and depend upon. And they're stuck together, but there's never really a reckoning with the fact that she's kind of sort of not so low-key racist. Yeah. 
Exactly. What do you think, Netta? Uh, I found the dynamics a little distracting because they're so different in the book. In the book, G.H., who is the African-American man who shows up with his wife, Ruth, who in the movie is his daughter. And I know that the director has said that what he wanted to do was introduce another generation. You know, I, I, I get that. But what we lost was we lost a really powerful, complex, older African-American woman. Mm-hmm. I really missed her. I was going to say they're older than Mahershala Ali. Yeah. But Mahershala Ali is younger than Juliet Roberts. He's, he's almost 10 years younger. And um, he's not as big of a star. <laughs> and so she brings a kind of star authority to the movie that because he's such a terrific actor, he can match. But I keep on thinking about the movie that nearly got made with Denzel Washington in that role. Mm -hmm. He was originally attached to play GH, and he would have brought a star power that would have been as big as Julia Roberts. He would have been age-appropriate for that role. There's some sexual dynamics between the characters that are completely missing from the book. Mm -hmm. And then there's the introduction of the Myhala character. And to be clear, I love Myhala as an actress. More Myhala. I loved her in Black Mirror. I loved her in Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. But in this movie, I wanted to see the character of Ruth as she was originally written as an older character. Mm-hmm. In this movie, she's she performs the part of eye candy. She is a gorgeous young body that um, is there in part to be ogled. Mm-hmm. And something about that also just didn't sit quite right with me. Yeah. I One of the things I thought about was I think it's extremely effective. I mean, look, Sam Esmail is a very visually dynamic director. And people have been talking about that at least since Mr. Robot, right? I think he stays out of his way, his own way, mostly. I think it doesn't become as distracting as it sometimes was to me on in some of his other work. But he does have some really fabulous, you know, overhead shots, tracking shots, tracking Julia Roberts as she moves through the house, mm-hmm. which is essentially how they introduce you to the setting that you're going to be in. I think he makes gorgeous, gorgeous shots. And I also think that as a horror movie, this is quite effective in the sense that you see these things that are, I've never seen, you know, one of the opening creepy things in a horror movie be a an oil tanker running aground. I think that's a really interesting, strange, scary thing. And there's a Tesla sequence, I'll just say, yes. that I thought was excellent. Really interesting. Again, weirdly, upsettingly plausible potentially. And those kinds of things I thought were so good that I think it's well worth a watch. I just think its uh, reach is exceeding its grasp a little bit when it's trying to do some of the kind of issue exploration stuff. Because that is the stuff that, as Juana said, felt a little contrived to me. You know, neither uh, the Tesla sequence nor the oil tanker sequence are in the novel. And that was a big adaptation swing that I agree completely worked. He also made a couple of other adaptational moves, if adaptational is a word, that I really appreciated. Like in the book, there's a lot of sort of fetishistic cataloging of the material goods that the family brings with them, for example, to the beach house, you know, this kind of coffee and this kind of organic fruit and these kinds of clothes and this kind of bags. And it would have been very easy for him to have fallen into the trap of, of dwelling on those details. Showing all that yeah. stuff, yeah. He's, he's a subtle and funny director. And he's also a lot more clear about this really being an act of warfare, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which in the book, it's a lot creepier. And uh, and you're not really sure where the threat is coming from. And here, 
he does a very good job of um, of setting up what is going on. I think one of the things that frustrated me a little bit was the fact that I kept feeling like GH was on the verge of telling us something big about what we were watching happening to the people in this film. He hints at the fact that he might know more. He has some information from his former client. There are all of these sort of little unresolved breadcrumbs that never get fully realized. And as a viewer, I found it really frustrating. I know when I was watching this, I was watching it at home by myself on my laptop. There were parts of this movie where I felt myself physically feeling so anxious for these characters and waiting for these crumbs of information and to better understand kind of the folding in on itself that we're watching happen to society in real time, yet he never says the thing. And I think that ultimately might be the thing that frustrated me most. And I'm not sure if that is just a fixture of the movie or if that is also a fixture of the book. I agree. And some of them were red herrings. There were red crumbs and there were red herrings. Mm -hmm. And after a while, it was a little boy calls Wolfie just to keep piling on the cliches where I was like, okay, come on. You know, that's, I'm clearly being led astray a little bit by this. And it's, I'm not, I'm not falling for it this time. Yeah. And I think, you know, they don't give a ton of detail early on about, I mean, obviously you really don't have any idea what's going on at the beginning. And I sort of think that's when it's most effective. I think kind of the more overt it becomes and the more clear it becomes, as Netta said, what's happening, the less sort of enthralling I found it to be, just because the uncertainty is what I find the most frightening. You know, listen, I am a person who counts on connectivity at all times. <laughs> and the idea that you just suddenly, all the things that you just suddenly would not be able to do and the people that you would not be able to contact, those things are all really frightening to me. So the uncertainty was what I found scariest. And to build on that point and on something Wano was saying, something that I was thinking about with this movie that I actually really enjoyed was that the two characters who have the most information, who are best prepared, both sort of intellectually and materially for this collapse, are the person with the most wealth and privilege, or at least the most wealth, who is GH, and the person in the movie with the least, who is a working class contractor mm -hmm. in the movie. He's kind of a survivalist in the book. He's just kind of a he's just kind of a blue collar uh, working man. They are the ones who are ready in ways that are kind of bumbling, you know, bohemians from Brooklyn are completely, you know, they're they're utterly hapless. Yeah, I think that's right. And I I think that character who is played by Kevin Bacon is such an interesting touch to me because he's not really around long enough to be terribly well-established as a guy. But I think basically in the scene or two that he has, they manage to give you a sense of his menace in a way, but also his, as Netta said, good planning. The fact that he has been kind of more paying attention to some of these things than certainly the the vacationing family has. But there were things, you know, you were talking a little bit about red herrings and dropped breadcrumbs. There were also some things where if you were going to do the social commentary that I feel like I would have spun out a little bit more, such as the fact that when they make this agreement that the families are going to share the house, G.H. and Ruth, who own the house, decide that they will stay in the basement. And she kind of, you know, she openly is angry about that. She and her father, and this is another thing that I think is one of the better working elements of the movie. She and her father have very different approaches to dealing with these people who 
they both know are, you know, that she's a racist. It's not that. It's that they just have very different ideas of what the way to go about dealing with it is. And I would have watched more of kind of the stuff about the staying in the basement because it was so clear that that was such an irritant to Ruth. But they didn't talk about it a whole lot. She mentioned it once or twice. But I felt like that was going to go someplace more than it ultimately went. Yeah, it was interesting because you're watching them essentially be treated like unwanted house guests in their own home, which has got to be like something that just gets under your skin and you can't claw out. But to your point, Linda, I think it's very interesting. I mean, you see that you can see this in all other types of culture. It's a very typical two different approaches. Do you make the white people comfortable or do you tell them and get into their face and let them know that the way that they're treating you is inappropriate? It's like it was a very interesting intergenerational dynamic that I think did work well watching them the two different ways that they handled this. And and as Netta was mentioning, the loss of kind of an older generation of people who maybe would have been, you know, a generation older than Mahershala Ali is, that question of you know, how do you respond to racism when you encounter it? It would have been interesting to have people who are older than he is. I think it would have benefited from the inclusion of that perspective. But I mean, I do think everybody is very good in this. I think Ethan Hawke has really mastered the worthless husband who somehow like gets away with it and feels sort of sympathetic, even though he's kind of a worthless husband. I've seen him do this a number of times. I loved him in this. And I was curious about why he was in the movie, because it's not a huge role. He brings so much to it. He punches way above his weight. He plays this kind of a rabbity husband. He is deeply um, unlikable. And at the same time, um, he freaking tugs on your heartstrings in ways that you really don't want him to. He's He does so much with a really nothing part. And I I really admired him as an actor for picking this part and for bringing bringing the star power he has to this movie. I have to say, a couple of characters we haven't talked a lot about that I really loved were the two kids. Oh, mm-hmm. I just thought it was perfect peak adolescence. I think yeah. we also can't forget the character of Rose, who is this sort of vacant, weird, single-focused kid who just carries so much big energy about her. And I just thought they, for me, were some of the best parts of watching this film. Yeah, I will say uh, Charlie Evans plays Archie and Farrah McKenzie plays uh, Rose. I think they're both terrific. And I I agree with you. I think particularly, you know, to me, Rose is such a good, sometimes you get those like spooky kid parts and they can be very hard to inhabit in a way that doesn't just seem like the kid is weird, Yes, right? Like she, I think, makes this a spooky-ish kid who still has a, a lot of humanity and and heart, even though she is, as you said, vacant in this certain way. But yeah, I liked the kids too. I liked the kids too. And she's a, a vacant in a way that's deeply relatable in yes, this moment. She's exactly. got these saucer eyes and she's taking it all in and she sees things that no one else sees. And at the t- same time, she doesn't have, mm-hmm. nobody has the developmental tools to deal with the end of the world. I mean, of all of the characters, I mean, I think that she really is the stand-in for the audience more than any anyone else. And your parents' failure to take care of you is so profound. I think that's right. And she's part of some of the scenes where I think the film does a good job of identifying ways to suggest, and I am a sucker for this kind of thing, ways to suggest that something is deeply wrong that aren't the 
most overt, like, it's not that you're seeing military jets fly overhead. It's not that you're seeing, you know, mushroom cloud, whatever. It's that you're seeing, like, as I mentioned in the intro, way too many deer are at the edge of the woods. And it becomes, as they pull back, there's a kind of a, you know, you see that there are too many deer and then they pull back and you see that there are really too many deer. Mm -hmm. I think that's a very effective shot because it's one of those things where you would immediately be like, oh, no. (laughs) Oh, something very bad is happening. But it's not the kind of most overt, like, you see a masked murderer or something like that. It's the scary stuff that is just something is definitely very, very wrong. Totally. We want to know what you think about Leave the World Behind. If you get a chance to check it out on Netflix, find us at facebook.com slash PCHH. That brings us to the end of our show. Netta Ulibi, Juana Summers, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Linda. Thanks, Linda. This episode is produced by Hafsa Fathima and Liz Metzger and edited by Jessica Reedy. Hello, Come In provides our theme music. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. I'm Linda Holmes, and we'll see you all tomorrow. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. Okay, close your eyes for a second. Now imagine you're on your dream vacation. No work calls to answer, no text messages to respond to, just your suitcase and an opportunity. The opportunity to just take yourself out of your routine and travel deeper. How to actually take that dream trip. That's on the Life Kit Podcast from NPR.